I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this is Monetize Media. On today's episode, we speak with Brandon Perna, founder of That's Good Sports, a hilarious YouTube sports show. Brandon is a success story in taking a niche local audience, Denver Broncos football fans, and scaling it to a national following of 288,000 people on YouTube. He relies mostly on Google ads, but has spun off an ancillary products business to diversify revenue and takes direct sponsorships. His website sells opportunistic t-shirts, and he even has a white label coffee brand. Which, by the way, is very good. He also has a partnership with Manscaped. Listen now as Brandon walks us through his creative process building The Daily Show for Football, the unending doubt of having a content-based business, and the volume of work required to sustain creativity by providing a unique take on a crowded content market that is sports. On to the interview. All right, I want to welcome on Brandon Perna, founder of That's Good Sports. Brandon is a YouTube football comedy host. When a lack of physical ability and athletic talent ended Brandon's career prospects of becoming the greatest quarterback in NFL history, he turned his talents towards creating daily show-style videos about the NFL with an emphasis on the Denver Broncos. His show can best be described as if SportsCenter ate Weekend Update on SNL and then regurgitated a football show on the internet. His YouTube channel, That's Good Sports, has over 800 videos over... 70 million views, each one written, hosted, and produced by Brandon. He's built a studio in his basement and is committed to creating humorous videos about football as a fake sports anchor until he probably dies alone in said basement. Brandon, <laughs> welcome to the show. Glad to see you're still alive. Yeah, thanks for having me. I do need to update that because I believe the video total is closer to 2,000 now. So hearing that is just a reminder of how many videos I've made in like a four-year span. So uh, appreciate the intro. Uh, thanks for having me. So give our listeners, that's a boilerplate, give them the origin story. Uh, I looked at your LinkedIn, looks like you worked in TV, lots of video production, and now you're, I assume, full-time with That's Good Sports. So give everybody your origin story, how you got here. Right. Yeah, I was a video editor coming out of college and I made my way to the West Coast, as most uh, aspiring filmmakers do. And I landed eventually in Los Angeles working for a, a company called Maker Studios, which was one of the first like uh, MCNs, like the multi-channel networks that were cultivating YouTubers in one spot and building a company on YouTubers and their success. So I was directing and editing videos for other YouTubers, which at the time was like super crazy in terms of people making a living doing YouTube. It was still new and I didn't even fully understand like how it was working and, until I got there. So I was working for a channel called, well, it was the Ray William Johnson channel and the show was equals three. And like at the time, it was the most subscribed to channel on YouTube. Like we hit like 6 million subscribers when he was doing the show. And now like you look at sub numbers, that's kind of like a lower end sort of top tier creator. So I was working with all of these other guys having a ton of success, you know, doing the grunt work as the editor. And I'm like, man, I want their success. I'm tired of taking notes, doing the edits. 
taking notes that I don't agree with, so I'll do my own thing, and it's like, what should I talk about? And it started as sports with another, with a comedian, uh, Sam Comro, and then eventually another comedian, Drew Lynch, who both went on to have massive success outside of my show. And once I kind of narrowed in on the Denver Broncos, the niche sort of market, and really just focused on football, that's when my channel sort of started to get a little momentum behind it. And my wife and I ended up moving back to Denver where I lost like all my freelance editing work. And so I really didn't have a choice, you know, other than to either find a full-time editing gig in Denver or just double down on my channel because my wife had a good job and she could support us while I did that. So I was able to kind of, you know, make that transition. And now, yeah, that's all I do is football videos, football podcasts, football live streams, and the last like two years have kind of been insane for growth and the way it's turned into just like a, you know, 80 hour a week job. <laughs> it's amazing to hear, I think Kyle and I tie in here well, how many creator economy or entrepreneurial stories involve like my wife was the one who kind of allowed this to happen. Yeah. Especially in my case, <laughs> I, my wife was five months pregnant and I came home one day, I, was, I used to be a pharmaceutical rep, you know, gone 12 years ago. I was like, I can't do it anymore. Like I, I quit. Right. Like I have to just move on. And if it wasn't for her having her job, having the health benefits and being allowing me to go do the entrepreneurial route, there's no way I could have done it. It's just a theme that we see continuously throughout all, all the successful people that we speak with. Yeah, you need that like foundation so you can take a chance on yourself. And I'm completely grateful. And now she's, you know, kind of doing some freelance work here and there and left her full-time job. So like, it's been like a great balance, but yeah, it was the catalyst to actually like buying into believing I could do it, knowing like I could just let me put the effort in and see if something happens. And it takes so long that it doesn't feel like it's happening when you're doing it. But yeah, that's really cool to hear too. So you move back to Denver, you take it full time, you have a little bit of a backstop. What do you tell people then and now that you do? I know, you know, I was in sports blogging forever and people would ask me and depending on the audience, I was always like, it sort of created my answer. What do you tell people? Yeah, I, I would mostly kind of just defer to saying like, I'm a freelance video editor. Yeah, I do this YouTube thing kind of on the side because there was like this part of you that's embarrassed to say that you're a YouTuber. And now it's like, Saying you're a YouTuber seems like the classiest of the social media, like influencer sort of titles. Like, I feel like TikToker is what I felt like saying YouTuber was years ago. And then over time, people get more and more used to it. And now it's like a couple of my friends were teachers and they would tell me that the number one thing, like their students say they want to be is a YouTuber. <laughs> so it's, it's just crazy. But yeah, it was freelance editor, uh, you know producer, video producer, sports video producer. And now, now it's just like, yeah, I have a YouTube channel. And then people are like, oh, really? They find that interesting. So. so you have a YouTube channel in sports, right? And sports is a crowded market. A lot of people want to create sports content. A lot of people want to do it as a hobby. Some people you know, really dream about being able to do it full time. Talk about growing the That's Good Sports brand. For people who aren't aware of it, check it out on YouTube, That's Good Sports. But it's a very unique brand. You have very interesting branding, kind of throwback branding, unique style. You're different than 98% of the other creators out there who are talking about sports, who just want to be sports talk radio guys or, or look like that. So talk about growing not only your audience, the content, but then the brand and making yourself different. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because... <laughs> 
every day I'm like, man, I got to figure out something different to do with my channel or my approach to, to making videos. But essentially, the idea was just to talk about sports and, and football the way, you know, my friends and I would talk about it when watching games. And that's just with like a lot of dumb jokes and dumb observations. The weird stuff that happens during games, like pointing out like, you know, a guy dressed crazy in the stands or a player doing something weird on the sidelines that the announcers don't really address. And that's when I started. Now that stuff's like, that's all people talk about. Like you see that at Twitter, it's the, the announcers have embraced more of a, a fun approach to games. I feel like they're not as serious. So, you know, my whole shtick was like, let's just talk about sports like a news broadcast but make it funny like you know like the daily show would do and over time it was just the broncos like i said and that that was if you're starting and you want to get into it i think like a, a niche really that's the way you build an audience and then once i kind of branched out to covering the nfl as a whole that's when i was able to really grow my channel so like my approach was making the show repeatable from my house or apartment at the time and to make it look as run down and as janky as possible. It's one of those things where, as a video editor for so long, there's so many things like I wouldn't do as an editor with my show, but I intentionally do to make it look worse or feel like it's, you know, kind of, it is a one-man thing. And Well, I have a writing partner now, but like playing into the lo-fi version of it to keep it repeatable was like a conscious thing. And now, like, I think that sort of helps separate it stylistically, you know, what you're bringing up in terms of not wanting to be like a sports talk guy. I don't think I have that talent. I think that's a completely different skill. Like I wanted to write jokes about football. I didn't think I was funny enough to write jokes like as a stand-up or on that, but it's like, maybe I could be a funny guy in, in sports. It's like a, a different area. So that's kind of what I leaned into. There's a lot of self-deprecating humor there too, from what I can say. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're going to make, I think if you're going to make fun of other people or make fun of athletes, if they don't play well, you have to be able to make fun of yourself. Otherwise you're just kind of a, you know, an ass. So like I try to make fun of myself as much as I make fun of any other, you know, situation. That's our first red flag for people that Kyle and I have ever worked with over the years is if someone is not self-deprecating or humble, we, we're, we're like, oh, this, this is not going to be a good match for us. Right. It's, you got to have fun with your, like the whole point of the show is like to have fun, like to make it entertaining for anyone watching and to make them laugh. And any way I can get a laugh is kind of the approach there. So other than that, like, I feel like what I do isn't that different. It's just a bit of a different presentation. And over time, you get better at writing jokes. You get better at learning the things you should joke about and you shouldn't joke about. Um, if I look back at old videos, I'm probably like, I can't believe I said that. Um, but, you know, that changes. I always just liked, like, the old school type, like, graphic packages. So I definitely wanted to incorporate that sort of thing. And doing also just kind of like, there's a lot of weird transitions in my shows. And people still comment on those. And that was kind of like just being a fan of almost more offbeat comedy, like Tim and Eric type stuff. Like, if I could really, like, double down on it. I would love to just go off the walls with that sort of style and just really making it weird and eccentric while still, you know, having a cohesive point and people who watch sports feel like they get the information they need while getting the jokes with it. But um, yeah, I think it was just trying to capture like a style I liked. It wasn't any, I didn't think it would be successful because of the branding. 
I just knew making graphics and all of that stuff for me was the easy part. <laughs> so I could do that quickly. And then, you know, learning to actually talk and perform and do jokes, that's, I needed the time. So if I could polish that up a little bit with some distracting graphics, I felt like that would help. <laughs> Did those distracting images and videos, was that kind of a way to subtly work in like an ad sponsor or was that no. with the thought of that something else? I had no clue that I would be doing ads when I started. And at the time, like when I was working for like the other YouTubers, the in-video brand reads weren't really a thing yet. It was the YouTube ad revenue was pretty insane for for guys then. And so like all of the, the guys were making money on just the YouTube ad, ad revenue. So my plan was just like, hey, if you build up a channel, get enough you know views on each video, you can make money that way. Um, I didn't like, I wasn't even thinking about sponsorships. It just, once those came, I knew I had a format that I could fit that into. And luckily I just, you know, I had a cold open, a little graphic intro, and then I'd go into the show and early on, you know, brands wanted their ad in the first minute of the video first two minutes. Now they're like first five, six minutes. So I was like, well, I just got to get it in after the intro. And, uh, it, it kind of just worked out that way, but I had no idea anybody would ever want to sponsor the show. So, and the first like sponsor I got was completely by accident. I was helping Vic Lombardi, who is a sports anchor here in Denver. And we went and did an interview with former Broncos quarterback, Jake Plummer, about a CBD company he was working with. And they just happened to put me in contact with their ad person and they started doing ads on my channel. And now I have a company that does that for me. So yeah, it was kind of luck. <laughs> I wasn't planning on it at all. So you start getting an audience with Broncos fans. You get maybe your first ad accidentally, right? And eventually you branch out to general NFL content. So at what point did you know you were onto something in Denver and you're like, okay, now I could scale this audience beyond just a local market and go national? Because again, as someone who ran a local website, I always wanted to do that and had no clue how the hell to do it. I was like, I, I don't know how you take my local audience and make it work on a national scale. Yeah, I mean, I still question like what I'm doing or how I do it and <laughs> make it bigger. I think I started to feel like I had something And this. I was still in LA, but a guy named Chad Jensen who runs the Mile High Huddle website for Sports Illustrated. Well, it's Sports Illustrated now. It's like the Broncos based site for them. He was working for, I think it was Pro Football Spot, a different blogging company, but it was the Broncos page. And he reached out to me to do some videos for their blog. And I was like, oh, this is another Broncos fan grinding away, writing articles, likes my videos, wants me to help out, you know, with, with their content. So maybe I have something here. And we started working together. And when I moved to Denver, he kind of, his opportunities grew through the website he created and I started making more videos for the Broncos content. And then we started doing a podcast and I was like, wow, we're podcasting. I'm making videos for them. I'm making videos for myself. None of it's like significant in terms of revenue, but it was a bunch of little pockets. And we were staying in my parents' basement while we transitioned to Denver to, you know, before we found a house. So I didn't have to make money, but that's kind of when I thought like, if I just keep doing this, uh, Vic Lombardi reached out to me. Like I said, he was the, the local anchor here in Denver. His validation of what I was doing, and he was working with CBS at the time and wanted me to help produce videos for him. So I was doing what I could to help him out. And then another sports company out here, which is now 
D and VR or all, all city sports. I started doing work with them. So my freelance work went from like just straight up video editing to sports, you know, specific for a few different companies here. And I was helping them so much. And I found myself just wanting to just focus on my videos and my channel. And I just, at some point kind of had to make the decision to stop doing that stuff and just do mine. And once I signed with the management company, Table Rock, and they started getting the sponsorships, that was the second level. So kind of believing you can do it. And then when somebody can actually help you monetize it, or you figure out how to monetize it successfully on your own, I went from like hoping to make, you know, maybe a thousand dollars in a month to, oh, they're going to bring me a brand that will pay me a couple thousand dollars in a month to do videos. Like that's a real job. <laughs> so those were kind of the phases to get there. Like there wasn't one moment, but it's it's a little bit of confidence you build in each sort of step you're taking. So so at that point, so it's the point where you get someone to represent you and sell ads on your behalf where you're like, okay, I have enough traction here that I can, now I can pay myself and I can keep going with this and find ways to grow. Yeah. And it, it was Denver sports related. And even the channel was still pretty Broncos heavy at the time. And the way I was getting brand deals was kind of by luck or by companies reaching out to me. But then once the management company reached out to me and that process took a few months because I was, I was scared to trust somebody that I didn't know, you know, handle ads for me. Like I had no way to verify really that they were going to follow through on their promise of paying me other than their word. And I, I talked to the founder of the company several times and every time I got a great impression from him. But once they like delivered like that first check, and I think it was Manscaped was the very first brand I worked with through the, and I still work with Manscaped. It's like my most consistent sponsor. It's a great fit for what I do. But yeah, that the first check, and I was like, this is a national brand. I just saw them on Shark Tank. There's validity here to this company. And they're cool that I do Broncos stuff. There's like enough reach there for them and I'm converting for, for them. That's the other part of it. Like you want the brand and then you want them to come back. So you have to convert for their, their end. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm, people are actually buying their product after I promote it. Like that was real for me too. And what's that like when you- Knowing somebody could handle that side of it, like the business part of it, was huge because I'm not good at that. And I think a lot of creative people sort of feel that way where they're just like, they will negotiate themselves the worst deal because either they don't believe in what they're doing or they just don't know to ask for more. <laughs> so I was like, oh God, they're getting me more money than I would have asked for. So having that sort of handled by somebody else was key for me. And it allowed me to focus on just making content instead of following up on billing or negotiating, you know, that part of it was out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask, you know, for people who are creating content and they begin to get some traction you realize you can make some money doing it and, and, you know, something resembling an income and a salary and, and beyond, how often do you have to put on even now? So back then, or, you know, whenever this started, you preferred creating content, you had someone outsource some of the business stuff, but you've continued to grow. You now have some products and you have coffee and apparel, which I want to get into in a sec. But before we do, like, now, how often do you wear the business hat versus the guy who's got to create the content hat? It's kind of always on, right? I wish it wasn't. Like, I wish I didn't have to do anything business-wise. There's like a, a bit of excitement when you're hoping to land like a new sponsor or a new deal or a new opportunity, but it feels like every day I'm responding to like an email or following up on something 
it's always there's like taxes you're dealing with it's it just it never ends i think you just get better at doing it over time but i never let that be a prominent part of my day i just do that stuff as fast as you can and then writing the videos editing shooting like that's always going to take up the majority of my time so that's what i focus on sometimes you know stuff gets pushed aside for way too long that i sh should deal with on the business side of it but you always kind of have like the larger i think your channel grows or whatever platform it is you're on it's just the more things come your way that you have to deal with right and sometimes it's just like YouTube and a video, like two weeks ago, a USFL video got blocked by the USFL. And it wasn't a big deal because my channel wasn't affected. Just people couldn't watch that video. It was after spending an entire day making it. And then you appeal that. And then you're dealing with people who are like, hey, what happened to this video? And you get, just taking the time to sort something like that can, you know, eat at your day. And so it's little things, unexpected things that you find I feel like every single day, <laughs> but the key is just, I always keep the main focus on creating the, the stuff, whatever that stuff is, a podcast of, you know, produced video or whatever it is for the day. Yeah. I know for us too, in our, we've been working together for four years. Sometimes we'll have like a shitty day and there seems to be an effort that no matter what to try and end the day well, even if there has been a lot, you know, like kind of, I think there's an old, there's some sort of a saying out there I've been hearing around lately, like however, however it ended is how it was, you know, kind of thing. So if you can, if you can end the day strong and the business day strong, at least you can come into the next day feeling that much better about things. So I'm sure as a creative person, it's trying to avoid being bogged down is, is a main goal. Yeah. Or Bogging yourself down so much that you just have no choice but to just do all the work and not think too much about it. What is the what does the work life balance look like for you? You mentioned before we get on that you have a you have a twenty month old, I believe, and that changes the game. When you know you don't have kids, you can work effectively around the clock. What does that look like for you then versus now? It changes. I look at the the years two phases, which is well three. You've got football season and then football off season and then the real football offseason. So from like August to the Super Bowl, it's just crazy. It's really hard for me to allocate time to do anything outside of the house. That said, within the house, like with my wife and the child, I make a really conscious effort to be there for both of them. Like I do have the luxury of like, I can step away for 20 minutes during the day to help with the baby to, you know, do whatever. And, you know, sometimes that just means I'll work maybe more once she goes down. And I think my wife and I have found like just a really solid balance there, like with our roles in terms of like doing anything with my family outside of like family events, even like my birthdays in October. I'm just like, I don't want to do it. It's like my family wants to celebrate it. So I feel like I'm doing it for them. It's like, I don't give a shit about it. I would just rather be working. <laughs> I don't want to do dinner. I don't want to do anything because I'm so zoned in on just trying to get through each week. And I'm trying to make a better effort this next season to dial that back just a little bit because this last year was a grind. But like right now, after the NFL draft ends, that's kind of when I have time. So that's why we took a vacation. That's why like I'll do fewer videos and try to do the things that, you know, are really important. And the last month I've spent a ton of time with my daughter because she's fun to play with now. Like I really look forward to it. So I feel like as busy as I am, that's always a priority, but that's like a personal thing everybody kind of has to figure out for themselves. We'll feel bad sometimes. I tell Kyle, I'm like, you know, TGIM, like, thank God it's Monday. Like, I, like you know, sometimes just it's a grind on the weekends with kids and you want to get to the office and do something. Yeah, like it's, 
when your work is kind of like the thing you're passionate about, that I think that also helps. It's like fulfilling. It's not, I'm really fortunate to not have to go to a job that I don't like. And when you're putting the effort into something that you see the direct rewards for, that makes a big difference too. It's like, okay, I don't mind working another two hours after we do the family time and, you know, we put the kid down, like, because it's worth it as opposed to like dreading going to work that next day. Yeah. So that totally makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. That, and that could be like almost a blessing and a curse. I know there's been times when you have a boss and you have a job, you can say to the family, hey, I have to do this because it's my job. When you're self-employed and it's something you're passionate about, you become the decision maker and you know there's something that you're really mentally into or that you know you have to get done or want to get done, but then you have to, you're the decision maker and you could decide to not do it. And I know I've walked to the dinner table before and it's like, you're there physically, but mentally, mentally, like the gears are churning. My wife would look at me and be like, I know you're on something right now, but I just have to ask you this one question. And then you can kind of go back inside your head. Like, is that tough? Is that tough for you to turn it off at five or six or whenever you walk upstairs? Yeah, no, hundred percent, especially during the football season. And it, I've noticed like at dinner and you're thinking about the thing that you need to keep working on either after dinner or the next day. Yeah. But luckily my wife and I worked in the same industry, the video industry. She totally gets it. And I think we're, we're pretty good about letting the other person know, okay, you, I know you're off somewhere else. Let's focus in on what's going on right now. And that's been helpful. But also, like, I, it's a personality thing. And by the end of the day, I'm also so sick of football. Like, I'll check in on Twitter and when games are going on because, like, that's part of the gig. But I'm also ready to de detach from it which I think helps. It's like a natural sort of like, you've put in the 10 hours on this already. You're not going to accomplish anything more right now. Or, you know, take the 10 minutes, write the three jokes you just thought of, and then get away from it and you'll jump in tomorrow. I also have a great writing partner, Will Keys, who helps me. So when I'm not working on something directly, I know he can be working on it. And I think finding those pieces to help the thing you're working on. And he's been huge. Like a big part of the channel's growth has been because I started working with somebody to help me write and that we've been working together four or five years now. So, um, like it's, I do like all the other shit, like most of the editing, uh, almost all the editing, I got to shoot it, but having somebody help me has allowed me to get away from it when I need to for like the family. Is that the total size of, of the business team? Just the two of you guys? Kind of. Yes. You know, I do, well, this last season, Tom Grassi, who's another YouTuber, he runs a Packers-themed channel, also does the NFL like me. We started doing a show together three days a week, so in the morning, just like an hour-long football talk show, basically. So, you know, Tom and I work together three or four times a week, and then I do another show called Clickbait Sports with four other YouTubers every Thursday. So, like, I work with all of those guys, and every now and then I get... Like I'll hire a freelance editor to help with like a video I just can't, like an evergreen type video that we've written and I've shot and I just don't have time to edit it. But, you know, there are other people, like I, I talk about, you know, being alone and working on it alone a lot, but uh, it's not ever fair to Will because he's such a huge help in writing. And then working with the other YouTubers and just having the dialogue with them to sort of bounce ideas off or just talk about different struggles you're going through or whatever, that's been huge over the last two years in terms of 
keeping you motivated and realizing like the issues you might be dealing with, like everybody is. Also when like views suddenly go down on your channel, like for a week, they're like, yeah, my views are way down too. Like, okay, it's not just me. It's not just me failing. It's people just aren't interested in, uh, you know, NFL news week three into March or whatever it is. So one of the reasons we want to have you on is you're doing more than just throwing up videos and getting eyeballs on them and taking ad revenue. You're selling coffee. You have t-shirts. You do some podcasting. You have premium YouTube. You have a Patreon. Talk to us about the mix of all of that because you've clearly thought about, hey, I need to diversify ways that I make money. I need to think about ways to scale. So just kind of give an overview of that. We can kind of go into each of those more specifically afterwards. Right. It's, I wish I could say like I had a plan for it, but it's, my approach has been every opportunity that has come that makes sense to do, I try to incorporate it. Right. And it's like, the old adage of you should have multiple revenue streams if you're, you know, working on your own. That's kind of been the philosophy there. And the ads, like the in-brand, the in-video ad reads were my primary source of income for so long because so much of what I did video-wise didn't make money because the NFL would just claim the videos and take the money from it. So I never even looked at like the YouTube AdSense as a way for me to make money. So I had to rely on the ads and I had to rely on Patreon early. And I still rely on Patreon and that revenue source is going down because I promote it less, but we keep doing that because we do like these monthly meetings with the people who sign up for Patreon. And now like I know all the guys and they show up every month and it's like a cool thing to keep doing. Then the podcast. Is that a Zoom meeting? Yeah, we just do a Zoom meeting and, you know, we just shoot the breeze for like a couple hours. Sometimes I drink a little too much whiskey and just ramble, but it's... <laughs> It's fun. You got enough of a hardcore audience where people are willing to pay to come talk to you about Yeah, and it's it's crazy too because the people there are so, some of them are so knowledgeable about like football. I'm like, man, they, they must really know every time I say something wrong or make a mistake, like, like these guys should be doing what I do because they know more about the game than, than me. So yeah, it's just, it's a cool thing. And like I said, like I, I know all of these guys now. <laughs> you talk to somebody for a couple hours, every month. It's something like I just, I look forward to doing, you know what I mean? It's, it's not like a task anymore. It's like, oh, cool. We get to do the Patreon thing. But then like Will and I were doing a Broncos podcast and then the DNVR helped me monetize that. So I'm like, oh God, the podcast turned into a real revenue stream. And then the YouTube revenue started coming in. And then Tom Grassi sort of showed me the way in terms of doing the live streams during football games which I was doing and they were successful, but I just didn't like doing them because I couldn't focus on the game. And I felt like it took away from my recaps, but the super chat revenue on YouTube turned into like another thing. And now I love doing the, the game streams. So it's just like, it was not a plan, but just every opportunity, like I can incorporate that and it won't take away from the videos. And the, the coffee company was, that's more of an ego thing. I just really like coffee. And my friend started the company and I, well, an acquaintance, I would say now more of a friend, but like we knew each other back from Maker Studios and I knew how smart he was. He was a big reason the company got acquired by Disney. So I, I wanted to work with him and he created a company that sell coffee and the whole way to do it was they would create the coffee, the, the shipping, the packaging, 
and work with creators to promote it and create a deal that way. So I kind of had to beg him to let me sell coffee uh, just because I it's like it was a product that I knew I would promote because I really am passionate about coffee. So uh, there was a fit there. And it's not like a good money maker for me because I don't sell quite enough of it, but it makes a little extra money. And I like to say that I have a coffee company. How does that percentage break down? You know, obviously from what you're willing to share, but you know, in terms of upfront ad buys and YouTube ads, ad revenue and then coffee and t-shirts and Patreon, like how does that break down in terms of percentages? Where does like the coffee fit into it or all of it? I guess just, I guess overall, how does, how would you bucket the percentages? I don't know. Like I would say the ads that we sell through the management company, the YouTube revenue, the podcast, I'd say those are like the big three. So like 25, 30% for all of those. And then the rest kind of just fill in there. Like the t-shirt sales, those could be big if I focused on them more. And really you kind of just need like a good idea like we, I sold a bunch of Teddy Throzevelt shirts early in the Broncos season when Teddy Bridgewater was playing well. Two years before that, it was a bunch of horsecock lock shirts uh, when they got Drew Locke. But you kind of got to be timely with those. Like I think Barstool sort of showed, like if you can get a shirt out about this thing or this player that happened quickly. And now DNVR does a great job with that too. But that's an area I feel like I don't do a great job on because you got to find somebody to do the design. Then you got to get it up on the store. And it's just like one of those things that kind of falls sort of like on the low list of priorities. I have a background in this. So we, we were doing shirts in Philly and, you know, we were out like you do with the coffee. Everything was white labeled and outsourced. And then eventually my wife and I decided like, Hey, if we do these in-house, we can make twice as much. If we do the fulfillment and she was kind of in charge of that side of it. And then the, the Eagles win the Super Bowl, and we do a Philly special shirt and we have a garage full of shirts. And it's amazing for like, you know, I'm in my garage for six weeks hand stuffing these shirts. It was worth it, believe me, but it's not a scalable thing and it's a one-off. And there's so many people, it seems like, who create content, the easiest product you could sell is apparel, a t-shirt, a hat, but especially with sports, it's so fleeting. So you could have this unbelievable spike, but then two months later, you're not se you're selling one shirt a month. So clearly for you, like the shirts and the products are kind of like nice to haves. Do you ever think about other revenue streams that you could have that might be more sustainable over time while at the same time, like not taking your eye off the ball of creating content? Because, you know, from I gave my example because the minute I started doing that, I was no longer creating content. I was in my garage packing shirts because I had to. How do you think about like, hey, I can I can maybe make money here, but I don't want to spend half my day doing this? Yeah, I don't anymore. I think like I'm kind of maxed out at what I can do, at least, you know, unless my channel was acquired or something and I could just host and it would be produced and edited and, you know, packaged by somebody else. It's the one revenue stream that I didn't see coming was I, I host a show for another channel called The Game Day. So The Game Day is a sports brand that's building and I think I was one of the first shows that they did. So I've been working with them for two years and somebody else writes the show. I just kind of punch it up a tiny bit and then they edit it and like I just get paid to be a host, which is like a dream I always had, you know, but it's kind of weird that it's in the same space as me. It's like a competition with myself, but you know, you're doing cross promotion, trying to help them build their channel. And hopefully as that grows, maybe some of their audience, you know, finds my channel that way. So that was 
something I didn't see coming and it's something that I hope we keep doing because it's really nice to kind of work on a show that is written by somebody else and produced by somebody else. And it's just me getting to sit down and have fun making sports jokes. But again, like, I don't know for certain that, you know, that's going to keep going. There's a lot of factors there. Has the massive, I guess, spread is the best way to say it, of legal sports betting changed anything for you in terms of sponsorship, money, or even content? Yeah, the last year has been just big for that, I think. That's what funds like the podcast. So the last two years is DraftKings has sponsored the That's Good Broncos podcast through DNVR. So my podcast is partnered with them and they handle those sales, but they've been like significant. And that's a thing where you ask the question, how long are sports books going to spend big money to advertise in these spaces? I'm just gonna assume forever, but you know, we don't know. <laughs> And like we saw DraftKings early on too, go after Dan Lebitard's show, right? They did a, a big deal with them and FanDuel with like Pat McAfee's show. That was this in the last, what, like six months or whatever. They got that $130 million deal for four years. Like my hope is they start looking at maybe smaller creators like us, specifically Tom Grassi's show that I uh, we co-stream together because we stream out to both channels and we get a few thousand people live watching those shows. And comparatively, it's pretty good. Like if you're looking at YouTube as a whole, the numbers are small. But if you're looking at sports YouTube, it's like we're some of the top streamers there. So we're just kind of like waiting for a sports book to be like, hey, here we want to purchase you or we want to purchase this show and invest long term in it because the wall we're facing is allocating that money to the resources needed to make the show better, right? So it's like on us 100% to figure out how to make the show better, but we're struggling with, we don't have any time, (laughs) extra time to do that. And Tom's a great example of somebody who works more than me and works harder than me. And so when we say like, we don't have extra time, it's not because we're lazy or because we don't want to fit it into our lifestyle. It's just because there's literally no extra time to, to do those sort of things. So that would be, I, I guess to answer your question, that would be maybe the next area is like working on a bigger scale for one of the shows. I don't know if that's like a channel acquisition or a show acquisition. Like I've tried to pitch my shit to multiple companies, multiple people throughout the years without success, but you know, somebody will eventually say yes, or they won't. And I can just keep doing it this way, which is a luxury, you know, I didn't think I would have. So for you, it's not... You know, being self-employed is great, but it's the con- creating the content is what you care about. And if someone owns yeah. owns the channel, you get to create the content, and make a living. You're happy with that too. Yeah, for a price to own the channel now. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Years ago, I'd be like, yeah, I'll do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I have, I would feel comfortable saying no to a very lucrative deal if I didn't feel like it was a, a good fit. That's what's really changed. I feel like in the sports media landscape, is it was very buttoned up when I started. And now with every reporter having the opportunity to leave a company like ESPN and do their own thing if they want, the way sports are covered on Twitter and various, there's so many websites that can have fun with it. Like it's kind of like the wild west of it's changing so much and it's, there's opportunities for anyone who wants to do it, but it, it is crowded and it takes a, like, I've been doing this 10 years and I think that's would be like the biggest message I would give to anybody trying to get into that space is just prepare to not be successful for a long time. And you really got to like doing it. And maybe if you get lucky, it'll work out. 
There's a lot of, uh, yeah, sports media right now is really good because of the gambling opportunity. And you got companies like DraftKings and FanDuel who are willing to spend. And there's this now natural advertiser. So that's, I mean, you got plenty, you got a ton of upside. You have unbelievable YouTube channel and a strong following. What risks do you see, right? Like, do you worry about like, hey, I'm on YouTube and Google could change their algorithm at any moment, or I got this revenue stream. How do you think about like protecting against that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't think about how I protect against it other than like I'm willing to adapt as it goes. The algorithm always changes, right? I know how to deal with that and it's out of my control. So I don't worry about the algorithm because I, I believe if you just keep creating videos people want to watch, they're going to come back. And that's really big on YouTube. The other part of that though is I'm at YouTube's mercy. So it would be like if for some reason you know, they didn't like my channel and wanted to take it down or I got a strike for something that there's like, I've dealt with issues on like really old videos that don't even apply to the new. And even early on with sports betting, a bunch of videos got flagged and I had strikes on the channel because YouTube was changing the way that they people had to, the rules they had to follow for doing sports betting ad. Luckily, my videos were up before they made these changes. Like, you can't punish me for something I did before. So it's, my biggest fear is just those things I can't control. And it's kind of hard to communicate to a company as big as YouTube when you do have issues. But yeah, you worry about any revenue stream going away. But I don't spend too much time thinking about it, mainly because like, I just got to get through the day. Uh, it's one of those things where hopefully like I can figure it out if something changes. I wish I had a better answer or a better plan, but I kind of I shoot from the hip with that shit. Looking back, uh, Brandon, is there anything that you think you could change or, or that you would do differently, uh, I guess, oh, over the past? Yes. Like, what would be that number one thing? Like, man, I would definitely have done this if I could go back and do it again. First thing I would change is I would have posted my first Broncos video when I created it. And Peyton Manning was a free agent. He visited with Denver and I made a video guaranteeing that he would sign with the Broncos. And then, you know, I had a bunch of dumb reasons why I was guaranteeing it. Created the video, ed edited it, and then I was just like, no, don't post this. You're uncomfortable. You're awkward. I just got scared. And then he signed with them and I was like, dang it. That would have been great. So I would have started earlier. That was in 2012. I would have kept doing those videos. And I would have incorporated the NFL as a whole way sooner into my channel. I was so set on just talking about the Broncos because it was a side gig. Like I was editing, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. And the last thing you want to do is edit more when you're done. But if I would like my knowledge of present day, I would have just doubled down on my work ethic early. And I think my channel could have grown much more quickly. Also, I might have not done sports, if I'm being really honest, <laughs> because it's YouTube, I think, is harder for sports creators to grow. Like, I work with a ton of sports creators, really talented guys, and not a single one of them is at a million subscribers yet, right? Versus you look at other categories, it is much easier to grow. And I think that's slowly changing. YouTube's embracing sports a little bit more. Like, sports wasn't even a trending category, so... It's harder for people to like find that. And I just think sports audiences are fractured, right? Like maybe you're just an NFL fan. Maybe you like all the sports. Maybe you're just a t fan of a team. 
Maybe you only like following players. It's hard to find enough people who want to watch like a general sports thing. And then when you do limit it to just a team, your audience is kind of capped there as well. And then some people like sports, but they're not super into all of the day-to-day -day details or news happenings. They just want to see the big stuff when it makes sense. So it's kind of a weird genre, I feel like, in terms of growing organically. Uh, Pat McAfee is kind of, I feel like, an outlier there, and that's because he's so like talented, and then the interviews they get have have helped and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird category. I feel like, and and there's advantages to that too. Like you don't have to be as big as like a gaming YouTuber to be successful because the sports books know that their audience is sitting watching your videos, and the people who are really passionate about football are watching my videos, and they're more likely to do sports betting or, you know, play in fantasy, daily fantasy leagues where they're putting money on, on games and, you know, performances. That's a great observation. It really is. It's hard to get true scale in sports because, you know, you just, everyone is so fragmented. That's really interesting. What do you think about so much of sports content is fleeting, right? If you go on YouTube and you watch a video about, I don't know, like how to, you know, think of something that's like weirdly niche, like how to clean a bug off your window, right? That video will be relevant today and it'll be relevant 10 years from now, more, you know, most likely. Sports, you're creating something about week four of the Broncos game and that has a shelf life of five days. Do you think that impacts it as well? Yeah. For me, because I do so many news specific topics and the game recaps, really short shelf life, I've had to be a little bit smarter about even like the news things. If I title them a little bit better where you extend maybe a two to three day shelf life to two weeks, that's been helpful. You have to be timely. So like if you miss the window of when that story is significant, you're missing out on probably like 20 or 30,000 views for that video. And then continually like guessing what people want to see is just another crazy part of it. But I'm trying to add more evergreen videos into what I do. So like right now we're working like on an Antonio Brown script. And then we have like a Jake Plummer, Jay Cutler thing. Those should have long shelf lives. But even then, if the topic isn't interesting, it might be interesting to me, but it's it's hard to guess what people click on. We've been adding those and some have done really well. Like we did one about Paxton Lynch being a big draft bust. He was a quarterback for the Broncos that didn't pan out. That video did well. Then we did a great video about like Russell Wilson changing the way quarterbacks are evaluated in the draft. And that one did just like any other video like I put out. So yeah, it's a constant guessing game. Adam, who has five points vids, another YouTube channel. He's somebody that I admire in terms of his videos are, are evergreen. So he's done like a lot of stadium videos and he's tooled his subjects to be clickable titles that will be relevant for years. And I want to add those into what I do, but not be the only thing I do because I really enjoy the, the news cycle. Like I like waking up and being like, oh shit, these three things happen today and we can just whip that out and, and talk about it. To me, that's what's fun. I like doing the longer form things, but I kind of like the immediate sort of response to those things and just riffing on what's kind of happening. That dopamine hit of, of seeing the news, yeah. commenting on it and getting the feedback on it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so we asked this the next couple to everybody. What is one tool, product or service that like you couldn't do your day to day without when it comes to, you know, making videos, digital marketing, anything like that? Adobe, Adobe Premiere, After Effects, that's, you know, I do so much of my work there. And then, of course, like YouTube, 
any sort of complaints that I would have about YouTube uh, don't outweigh like how grateful I am that that platform exists. It's easy to use. It's easy to monetize. They make so many things creator friendly. And the things you get nitpicky about are little things that you feel like hinder your growth or attack you personally. It's like, I could get more subs if YouTube would, the algorithm would kick my video out to more people. But, you know, mostly it works pretty damn seamlessly. And I think that's incredible to have that tool at your, you know, availability to use like whenever. So there, there comes a moment, anyone who has a content business or media business where you feel like, all right, and maybe you touched on this earlier, but I'm not sure it's going to work or it's going to fail or it's not scalable. What was like, is there one moment of doubt you had at some point along the way where you're like, oh my God, I don't, I don't think I could do this forever or it's not going to work. Like every, I still think <laughs> that is a, I don't know, a weekly thought monthly. It's less now. I think, you know, when transitioning from it being like a hobby to like, this is how I'm going to try to make a living. That was probably the scariest. My wife and I bought a house. I was barely making any money knowing like you have that sort of heavy thing you need to feed uh, a mortgage. And she was like, she was paying that, but like I wanted to contribute. So Making that switch was the scariest. That were the the most I would lay awake thinking about why don't you just do a real job versus this was in that phase. Now you worry about like maybe it could go away or maybe I didn't make the best video I I could have that day or I really missed something there. Those things that's what bothers me. Like get something wrong that really bothers me. So it's like the little things, but yeah, I. I when it's something weird like this, that YouTube and doing this, I feel like it's organized chaos and you're kind of just riding the wave and hope it doesn't crash. And then if it does crash, you can maybe float out and grab the next one and, you know, ride that along. But I'm sure any business owner feels that way, right? Whether it's running a bakery or you're an employee for somebody else, there's no guarantee any business is going to last. So I try to keep that in mind as well. And it felt weird at first. Like I, I read a thing, I think on LinkedIn recently about creators not feeling like they're business people. And then they go on to talk about all their different things they do to make their business run. And that kind of hit home for me because I don't feel like what I do is like a real thing. I know it's time consuming, but it's, it's like you're doing a bunch of different things and it just happens to be a way you can make a living. Yeah, We joke around the office sometimes that we know we have good intent, but we kind of feel like we're just like pressing buttons. And it's like, oh, shit, that one, that one worked. Like we didn't know it was going to work, but it worked. You know? Press it again. Press yeah, it press again. It. Yeah. And then you keep pressing it and it keeps working. And then all of a sudden it breaks. Oh, this button's not working as well. <laughs> I got to find another button to push. That's great. Was there a, that, so that was a, that was the dark question about like what was the moment of like you thought you'd fail. Was there a, a specific high point that really stands out to you where you were like, maybe not that you're gonna make it or this was gonna work, but it was like this was awesome. Like I can't imagine having being doing doing anything else. No, <laughs> I wish there was one of those moments. This podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're at least for me. The high you feel like when a video does really well is still is still up there. And when a video does like way better than you expect, that's a great feeling. The money, obviously, when that gets real, like getting that first brand check, like, oh, okay, maybe this is sustainable. But there's never been one moment where I'm like, this is it. I figured it out. It's always like, okay, that worked. 
I hope I can do it again. I think there's that doubt, like, I don't know if I can repeat that. <laughs> or you have like something that does really well and you know it's, you're probably not going to capitalize that, on that again. It's just like you got lucky. Like, I feel like I get lucky a lot when videos do well. Like, I posted one Monday, it's doing really well. I titled it smartly. And then I posted a video yesterday and it tanked. <laughs> so it's just like, and it's a, it's a better video. It's more football centric, but you know. Sometimes, sometimes you make your own luck. So I think give yourself some credit there. You got hundreds of thousand subscribers. What is it? 70, 70 million plus views. And you said 2000 plus videos. So you're doing something right. Brandon, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Why don't you plug, plug away? Where could people find you? YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, anywhere. Else. <laughs> uh, my massively successful TikTok account. Just that's good sports on YouTube. That's good Broncos on YouTube. And then Brandon Perna on the other socials, Twitter, Instagram, and my coffee company, benchwarmerbrew.com. Thanks, Brandon, for an awesome having you on the show. So that was Brandon Perna of That's Good Sports. Jason, I'm noticing for those watching on video that we're both wearing our Robox today. Was this our official brand? I think it's the official brand of monetized media. Apologies ahead of time if this totally, absolutely kills Robox sales, but we didn't mean to do that. Comfortable podcasting clothes. Sponsor us, please. So Brandon, really interesting guy. Totally, he's got a different demeanor than his videos. His videos are are scripted. They are very funny, very jokey, very daily show talking about sports. And he's a much more introspective guy about his business and his content than, than comes across, which is jarring. Some people are exactly like they are on their podcast and YouTube and other other people are are different, right? But I'm so fascinated by what he's built out because... That is so hard to do what he's doing and get an audience. He talked about it in the end that if you sports is tough on YouTube, sports is tough anywhere because so many people want to just do it as a hobby. Someone who's a lawyer might spend all their time tweeting about sports because it's their passion. It's a passion for so many people. And to stand and being funny and what he said in the beginning about like, hey, I want to be like I'm talking to my buddies while we're watching a game. Guess what? That is the pitch for everyone who creates sports content on the internet. So to stand out doing it, he was really selling himself short about you know, I'm not sure it's going to work, right? I mean, he gets six-figure video views. They're very well scripted and rehearsed. So to me, that part of it is like, is where his talent shines through. And he's, but it takes a laser focus on content. You could hear that he kind of hates the business side of it, but you double down on content, you put out good content and good things happen pretty much. Yeah, I mean, his videos are rhythmic too. I find them very easy to watch. He definitely is funny, you know, and to his credit, and I think the point you were getting at, this is not an easy nut to crack, you know, in this space. And if you can get that kind of, I think he's approaching 300,000 or more YouTube subscribers. I mean, that's a that's a big deal, especially like he mentioned in the sports uh, vertical that is divided up by so many different categories of teams and sports. So it's a credit to him. I'm with you. I think he's, you know, he's, he's, he knows what he wants to do. He's smart to not waste his time on some of the other aspects to it. He's been able to get an agency to help him do that. Those types of agreements and contracts and negotiations, or if you do happen to have a lack of experience in certain aspects of that, which he may have had when he was younger, it certainly helped solve that problem for him. Helps with the work-life balance too. If all of a sudden you're creating videos all day and then you have to go look at contracts and think about that type of impact on your life, uh, you know, when, as we mentioned on the podcast, you know, your time at dinner is not exactly focused on your family. Yeah, he spent a lot of time on, I would say, this like baseline paranoia that anybody who creates content 
on the internet for a business unless you're just the, the the utmost successful and have made you know you're the Jake Pauls of the world you've made so much money you don't really have to ever worry about anything but there's always that baseline paranoia for people and whether that comes from hey is my next video or blog post or podcast going to be good to hey what if the algorithm changes to, you know, oh my God, like, you know, this, can this last forever? And I thought he did a really nice job of talking about that and just how it could be all encompassing, especially when you're doing something that you're really passionate about, because there is nobody to turn off. There's nobody to hit the off switch for you. When you leave work and come home from a nine to five job, you're home. Most people don't love their job that much or don't love the subject matter. They're happy to not think about it at dinner. And it sounds like he, he sometimes is too. You, you get tired of football after 10 hours, but you know, you know, there's always more when there's no limit on what you could do. You know that every minute you apply to it, you could do more. My biggest takeaway, and I think I would hope it would be for some of our listeners too, is that he partnered with folks that probably, and maybe he did as well at first, would view as his competition. And it has really worked out for him in terms of, you know, business learnings, ways to generate more revenue, ways to potentially scale more, you know, kind of reminds us, you know, of our business relationship. We were slightly competitors in the beginning would have been really big competitors as time went on, but instead came together and we both did really well with that. So I see him doing that now. And I'm my guess is there's probably plenty of people in the video uh, space who would think, oh, I'm not going to work. That, that person is doing what I'm doing. Why would I work with them? But if you can find the right relationship and the right synergy, you, know, you're, you both can win. And uh, he made a very good decision. He seems to speak to that quite often too about some of his local relationships and friendships and partnerships. And then obviously the one for the GPS podcast with the Packers fan base. So it's, uh, it's certainly something to keep in mind with whatever type of business you're running today. You know, that's a great point because I think so many people, you know, if, if you're self-employed or an entrepreneur, you want to become self-employed, you're almost by nature competitive. You want to start something, you want to be good at it. And you look at anybody else who's doing it and your thought is, okay, well, I want to do it better or I want to do it different and I'm better at it or I want to be better at it. And it makes you, I think in your head, you kind of begin to carve out, well, that person is my local market competition. But unless you're selling a product where someone could only own, you know, if you're a car dealer, then Nissan and Toyota compete because they're next to each other. And most people are only showing up that day to buy one car. But when it comes to content, the world's a pretty big place. And particularly, you know, take him, take Denver Sports or Denver Broncos. And maybe he's got two or three creator YouTube competitors or podcast competitors. But chances are, to your point, if someone's willing to listen to him or one of his quote unquote competitors, that means they're really into the Denver Broncos. And guess what? If they like you too, they're not going to listen to one of your podcasts. They're going to listen to both. And you think about how niche things are right now. Like I've been really into watching car videos on YouTube because I need a new car soon. And, you know, I've been watching car reviewers, right? And you could tell some of them are natural competitors. But at the end of the day, I'm in the market for a car. I want to watch car videos. YouTube is serving me up car videos and I'm watching, I want more, not less of that. And I think to your point, the more people can open their minds to, hey, let me expand myself to their audience and return them a favor and show them my audience. And I'm not going to lose people. I'm going to net, you know, maybe you lose 10% of your audience. Like I like this guy better, but you might get 20% of a net lift because more people found out about you. That's a, that's a tough, that's a mature uh, calculation to make too. And he's certainly willing to look into different revenue streams. I mean, I think that's definitely a theme we're seeing as well, uh, which obviously makes sense. I mean, you want to explore and see what can be there. But through those experiences, you know, you then gain your ability to see what has worked, what hasn't, 
potentially what are my partners or competitors doing too. So there's a lot to be gained via that intelligence gain, uh, intelligence process of seeing what your competitors are doing or potentially partnering up. The uh, Yeah, the business. So for his business, so if I, I, we go into these interviews kind of with assumptions about the people we talk to. And then at the end, we kind of are able to either prove them or disprove them. And I would say a lot of my assumptions were disproven with, with Brandon, right? I see, hey, he's got a, a coffee brand, which is a really unique, a lot of people like coffee, but it's a unique thing for, for a sports creator to have their own coffee brand, right? He had t-shirts, that's kind of table stakes in the sports creation game. He had a Patreon, but it sounds like he really relies on, you know, the, the YouTube ads and the direct ads and the podcast ads, you know, so all advertising. And then the products are really ancillary. My guess is a lot of people out there see an opportunity, especially when the, you just have this green field in front of you. There's a number of ways you can make money and you try a product and it makes a little bit of money. You try a product and makes a little bit of money, right? And with him, what I'm wondering after speaking to him is, okay, would it make more sense for somebody like that to say, hey, I can sell stuff on behalf of advertisers. He tells us that Manscaped, like people were converting. It wasn't, that's a big moment when you create content, knowing that you're not just taking ad money and hoping that it works. You're having the advertisers say, no, people are coming and buying my stuff. Because to me, that says, wow, I can influence people to go do something. And that's where it's like, what if I create my own product? So I wonder for him, does it, someone like him, does it make more sense to really double down on the apparel, which can be fleeting, but coffee is not. Coffee is a consistent thing. Or something else is maybe it's events, maybe it's meet and greets, maybe it's game watches since he's in a local market and know that he can get people to pony up cash to buy something based on his influence. Or is it just such, I think for someone like him, a different part of his brain to grow a product or a subscription business that he's better off just spending all of his time on content and then just making sure he's on the right platform and has the right support to just monetize that with traditional advertising, be it direct ads or, or programmatic ads? No, they're good questions. The meet and greet thing popped up in my mind too, especially if you can get people to buy an additional you know, premium membership somewhere where it is a, where they are talking to you and to be able, you know, granted COVID obviously has impacted this, but you know, to be able to have that be a meet and greet somewhere and be able to monetize that, you know, not overwhelmingly. I mean, somebody shows up somewhere and they're like, oh, like, I'm being sold to now. I'm sure that wouldn't be great, but there's certainly an opportunity there for sure. Um, I had something else in my brain and just slipped. It may never come back to me, but I, I feel like he's he knows what he has to do, and you know, I'm not I'm not sure what Brandon's age is, but it it certainly he's found his comfortable spot where he knows the zone that he has to play in, and when he moves out of it, it's probably not good for him or for his business. Yeah, it's a great point. It's that point. I think probably everybody, when you scale to a level where he's at, where you got six figure subscribers and you're really big in that space, you're well known and you have a loyal audience. And then you got to decide, okay, I'm at a point now where I could really grow a business off of this because I have enough scale and I could do more things. I could hire people. I can create different segments, different creators working for me. Like there is that route you can go. And then the other route to your point is just, okay, no, I'm really good at this. This is the lane I'm in. It might not scale to, you know, this multi-million dollar opportunity, but it can continue to allow me to do what I love, make a good living, and just grow steadily and and you know, have that and just focus on 
creativity. And it's, it's a, I think, you know, everyone we speak to will have a slightly different action they take at that moment. Agreed. No, he was fun to talk to. It was um, a, definitely a different interview than many of the ones we've had thus far. I think to your point earlier, more introspective. And it was cool to kind of walk down that road of his thought process over a 10-year span. You know, because this is not, he didn't start it and all of a sudden get, you know, 91,000 views. You know, he's been doing this for quite some time and putting in a lot of work. So, you know, what he has now is certainly well-deserved. And, and that's the thing with sports, that introspective view and that constant paranoia that it's just not going to work. One of the hardest things about sports, and we both know this from experience, is that there's not, other than gambling companies, let's set that aside for a second, so that has kind of changed the trajectory of sports media, but other than gambling advertisers, there has never been a really, truly high value, natural fit advertiser with that audience. So if you're creating content about credit cards or about car tires, it doesn't really matter, right? Like you're, there's a natural advertiser for someone who's creating car and tire videos. It's, it's car and tire companies. If you're creating credit cards, it's banks. And it's, it's kind of an evergreen thing. The problem with sports is there's so much content and so many people want to do it. And it's such a wide general swath of the population that the most common advertising things are generally the lowest common denominator things like beer sponsors bar sponsors, you know, shaving cream, you know, things that don't have these like high product values. And by extension, those companies aren't willing to spend huge amounts of monies to reach an audience because it's relatively unfocused compared to someone who's creating content about car tires. You know exactly that's the audience you want. You'll pay top dollar because it's right down Broadway in terms of uh, what they're looking for. Sports is really tough like that. So I'm not surprised that, you know, some of our first guests who've been in sports have particularly brand that have kind of felt that like paranoia is like, hey, okay, like I got to keep making the sausage every day too. Yeah. I mean, we, we have done, we've been successful in what we've done, but that feeling is still present. And I think anyone who is goal driven, is extremely competitive, you know, it's there. You just, oh man, I don't know if this is going to work, you know? So it's, I think it's a common feeling we all have for, you know, we're trying to go somewhere that we think we need to go and be successful. All right. Well, anyway, check out Brandon and That's Good Sports on YouTube. Very good stuff. Very easy to watch videos. Even if you're not the biggest sports fan in the world, they're very approachable and they're entertaining. If you're listening to this show, we need five-star reviews and comments. Yeah. Even even if like, even if you just want to give us a five-star review and say, why do these guys keep wearing Robox shirts? You know, like is. It's fine, you know. Why don't you put your no, it's been good. Your favorite, your favorite everyday brand that you wear, right? For us, it's Robox. Somebody else might wear Under Armour. Go in the comments, leave us a five star review. Put your favorite everyday brand or what you're wearing while listening to the show. Pre- presuming it's it's clothes like you're wearing. I don't want to know. Yeah, that would be tough. It's not the what are you, it's not it's not the what are you wearing question. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, if like your favorite underwear is what it is, then it's what it is. All right, so so subscribe, listen and subscribe to Monetize Media. Uh, anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, go to monetize.media. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kyle Scott L, no spaces, and you are Jay Zernick. Jay Zernick. And then Monetize Media HQ for the show on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> <laughs>